This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. We're not starting from scratch. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the issues that I focused on in 2020 are still relevant today. So I've, you know, I've focused a lot on voting. I've focused a lot on environmental health disparities and making sure that we have clean air and water and communities. But what I continue to hear people tell me is important to them right now is basically COVID recovery, you know, the, the cost of living and of course housing, which is something that we cannot ignore in this area. So those are the areas I'll be focused on and try to brainstorm solutions with folks on. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Today on Crossing Division, I am delighted to be talking with Charlotte Mena. Charlotte, some of you may know, ran for the legislature uh, in the 29th Legislative District two years ago and lost very narrowly, like a handful of votes in the primary uh, to an incumbent Democrat. Well, that incumbent has decided to retire. So Charlotte is back in the game, stronger than ever, and we're delighted to talk with her today. So Charlotte, please uh, give us your little introductory spiel. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. And I'm really glad to be running for office again. You know, I started this journey two years ago um, and really never imagined myself running for office. You know, I've told this story, but my parents immigrated here from Mexico. My mom did migrant farm work picking in California and all the way up to Washington. And she met my dad at the meat cutting plant in the Tri-Cities. And that's where I grew up in Pasco. And so their main focus for us was, you know, things that they never had, three square meals a day, a chance at a higher education and a career that would keep us stable. Um, and, you know, I'm so proud that I became the first person in my family to graduate from college. And by the way, I was the first person in my family to be an American citizen as well. So I took that career. Um, I started my, my first job in Washington, D.C., working in Congress, um, and I did that for a couple of years before coming home to Washington State and working in the legislature and in the executive branch. And throughout that process, I realized that a lot of decisions were being made for our communities without our communities at the table. And we know that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? And so mm -hmm. it really became my mission in all of these public service roles to bring people into the process. And, you know, living here in the 29th and looking around at all of these really, truly urgent issues that we're facing in terms of housing and COVID recovery and the rising cost of living, you know, I saw that these needs were not being addressed. Uh, and I felt mm -hmm. like it was time to step up and take responsibility for these and to see folks in our community leading on these issues so that we could be a part of the solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, I am an immigrant also, a different story than yours. My dad was uh, is from New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand. Uh, and he was uh, in graduate school. He, he got the opportunity. He had a Fulbright scholarship to come to California and study at UCLA and met my mom there. And then they went back to New Zealand um, and started their family. And then uh, when UC Irvine opened uh, in 1965, they moved back to California and have lived in California mostly ever since then. And so, as I say, my immigrant experience is different in that I was always sort of integrated into the community. But I think even having that perspective of knowing a different place and, and having half your family in another place, it, it brings a, a certain outsider feeling, but it also brings an ability, I think, to look objectively at what's around you. You know, you, you're sort of invested differently. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that anyone that comes from an immigrant background has experienced what you're talking about, that, that feeling of being an outsider. And I think a lot of people, you know, whether they grew up here or not, um, especially in communities of color, feel that way. And they feel outside of the electoral process and outside of the policy process. And that's really what I found while I was campaigning. Campaigning in 2020 was simultaneously one of the most challenging and one of the best things I've ever done. I got to go to people's doors and talk to them and hear folks say, well, I'm a refugee, so I can't vote. And I said, well, you're a part, you live here. So I want to hear what you have to say. And I got to talk to people that said, I've, 
I've never had a candidate come to my door before. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't even know. And, and they're not even sure they, they really understand the issues they're dealing with. And they really have ideas for how to make those things better, but they're not sure where in the process, local government, state government, federal government that falls or what their role is in it. So, you know, it was really one of my favorite things was getting to talk to people and getting to bring people in. And I got to say, running the campaign was so fun. You know, this was something that I don't think my family ever anticipated any of us would do or even have the opportunity to do, right? You're mm-hmm. you're taught that you're an outsider. You know, I didn't speak English when I started school. Just thinking about even the ability to do this, to think, will anyone take me seriously? Will anyone in my network be able to support me financially? How, who will say yes sort of thing? But now, I mean, my mom is out there, you know, trading chorizo burritos for, uh, you know, for uh, donations. She's like, oh, my friend said she was going to contribute and I was going to make her green salsa because she loves Mm -hmm. it as a thank you. And so getting to do this with my family and my community and my neighbors is absolutely incredible. We're really building something. Mm -hmm. Do you have, uh, are you, is your family over here now also, or are they still primarily in the Tri-Cities? They're still primarily in the Tri-Cities. My, I have three brothers uh, and they live out in Pasco and my parents are in Pasco as well. That's great. Yeah, I'm the only family member up here too, which is it's a great freedom, but you know. <laughs> yeah. We won't tell our moms that. No, it's pluses <laughs> and minuses, definitely. Yeah. Well, you've talked a little bit about what you've learned through the process, but at the, at the end of the last campaign, what was your sort of big takeaway? What was the thing that you learned um, that was really kind of uh, changed your perspective on how everything worked? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think a lot about the people and their stories, their hopes, their fears, their dreams, and how inspired people were to be roped into a movement, into a process, um, and how much I think we actually can do if we do it together. And I know that sounds a little bit corny, but you know, I've really harped on this idea of movement politics and movement governing. And I think we have a lot of problems and sometimes we focus on the problems rather than galvanizing those problems and those sentiments into solutions. And so, you know, after the campaign, I kept working, right? Mm-hmm. The primary ended, it, it, we lost by, you said, just a handful of votes and it, you know, it didn't feel great. Um, but mm-hmm. I remembered all the people who put their confidence in this movement and joined it and had hope in it and wanted it to continue and didn't want that vote to be for naught. So we had a really big election in the general in 2020. We had a presidential on the line and we couldn't take anything for granted, right? Nobody could stay on the sidelines. And so that that fall, I launched a campaign called Vote As You Are. And it was a media campaign that was meant to appeal to Zoomers and millennials and just letting people know that we should be bringing our whole identity to this process. We should be bringing our whole selves, our stories, the things that made us feel like outsiders, the things that make us unique. And we should vote as those people. We should we should continue to you know stand up against the voter suppression and the voter disenfranchisement that we see around the country by being proudly who we are and by advocating for ourselves in that way. And of course, that led into the the effort, the voter registration and turnout effort that um, I co-launched with a a friend in 2021 to get more people engaged in the process. Mm -hmm. What did you find was uh, particularly effective? And this is a a really strong interest of mine. You know, a lot of our campaign philosophy is, you know, you go to the doors of the people who are the regular voters, you know, you want to get you know they're going to vote and you'd like them to vote for you. And that makes a lot of sense. But the people who have been the regular voters are older. And I mean, really older. You know, if you get a list um, from, from my uh, edge of town over on the, you know, North Tacoma on the West side, it's like your list is people in their seventies and eighties. So it's old, it's white. It tends to be slightly more affluent. Not always. You know, these are folks who maybe were in a working class neighborhood at one point, but the neighborhoods transition around them. And that's not, those are not the people that are going to be most directly affected by the, you know, political leaders of the future. So how, what did you find was effective in getting younger people and people who were not regular voters um, really into the system? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a couple of things. One is building the link between the things we want to see and tying that to voting and creating the intended outcome. We have 
a generation coming up right behind us, Generation Z, that is incredibly politically active. I mean, they're mm-hmm. out there leading demonstrations. They're they're trying to stand up against against gun violence and climate change and racial inequity. And, and they're doing a lot of work outside of the system. And what I wanted folks to see was that that outside pressure is absolutely necessary to making change on the inside. But we also have to vote to make sure that we can put people that agree with us and share our values inside the system. So I think it's making that link and saying these things are excellent and we should have a two-tiered strategy. We should be doing both things. Um, And the other thing, too, is I think just being really honest about, you know, the fact that maybe the system was not built with our inclusion in mind in every case, Mm -hmm. right? Like, especially now we're still seeing voter suppression and we've seen voter suppression laws pass in 19 states. And we're talking about 2022 and the federal government can't get it together to pass the Voting Rights Act or, you know, either of those two bills that were before the Senate this week. Um, And so we have to really take matters into our own hands. And this is what I'm talking about, you know, with with millennials and Gen Z and folks that have traditionally been left outside of the system to to stand up against that and to say, yeah, this is this is who I am. I, you know, maybe I was meant to be excluded, but I'm going to participate in this process. And I fundamentally think that, you know, that vote, that democratic engagement, that engagement electoral process is the foundation for making any change that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that 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 comment of, you know, maybe the system was designed to exclude us is really significant and and continues to be significant today. You know, we had Mitch McConnell just talking, you know, two days ago saying, you know, the votes of African-Americans, well, they're actually not being disenfranchised. They're they're voting in almost the same numbers as Americans. And, you know, that that complete lack of, you know, you just revealed so much about how you look at people. You know, there's there's white Americans right. who are the real Americans. And then there's these other people who, you know, really shouldn't really complain very much uh, because they're 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 pretty close to getting what, you know, the real Americans get. It's, a, yeah. you know. It was truly revealing and maybe shouldn't have been shocking because there mm-hmm. are things that underlie these laws that we see and these movements that we see. Um, but it was... It was very disheartening and very disconcerting. And I think about this a lot, too, in terms of the very large um, undocumented population that we have, not Mm -hmm. just in Washington, but in the United States writ large. And, you know, growing up to immigrant parents who came from Mexico are often the targets of this rhetoric and thinking about how much I was receiving those inputs and maybe those ideas that, you know, there's shame attached to this and, you know, folks shouldn't get the same things that everybody else gets in society. And it took me a while to get to this place where I, I really understood how, how wrong that was and how wrong it is that we have two different classes of people in the United States. And we have a bunch of folks who are working here and contributing to the economy and paying their taxes, certainly paying sales and property taxes and sending their kids to school who are serving in the military and just you know, even if you're not, even if you're just living here and you are a part of this community and yet you are entirely politically disempowered and disengaged mm-hmm. because you do not get a vote. And it's 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 certainly designed to be that way. If you think yeah. about how many folks would be enfranchised if we passed a pathway to citizenship for 11.5 million people. I mean, we could really see some policies that, that actually help folks. Yeah, I mean, we are in such an interesting time right now <clears throat> with the you know, you read the news stories about um, alleged labor shortages, which I don't actually think they are there. I think they're just people beginning to realize that they're they have value and they and they want more than what they've been getting. But you know, if there really are labor shortages, you would expect that everyone would be saying, "Well, we need to really reform our immigration laws because you know this country." Every time there's been a need for labor, we have looked outside of our borders. We have to. So, you know, you know, time and again, that is the solution. Bring more people in. Everyone thrives. The economy thrives. It's, it's healthier for everyone. But we're not hearing that. And we're not hearing that because, you know, there's just a, we just have a complete disconnect between, you know, policy and um, what I would call sort of the emotional philosophy of exclusion, racism, racism. The requirement that things not change beyond you know what they have been, even though they're destined to change, 
It's fascinating. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think that, you know, we've seen that we are not, um, well, like the Pope was shaming us for not having kids, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that was so ironic. It's like, well, how many have you had, Pope Francis? I mean, come on. <laughs> so we're so we're not uh, we're not you know on track to have the mm-hmm. the labor force that we need. Um, Social Security is running out, and you know the very simple solution to this is is immigration. And so we've really got to get it together and think about if we're going to be short-sighted or let identity politics really get in the way of building the the future that we all deserve. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it really is good for everybody. I agree. Yeah. Well, um, tell me a little bit more about your path towards running now in 2022. Um, How did you find out that um, Steve Kirby was not going to run again? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, Representative Kirby reached out to me and let me know that he was going to be retiring. And I think it's because we had built a relationship since the time of the election. So as I mentioned, since the, the 2020 election, I you know just got to work, working on some of the issues that I really cared about and that I, that I ran my campaign on. And as I started to engage more deeply with the community on voting rights, on redistricting, on immigration reform, on... You know, just just really bringing people into the process, I started to cross paths with him more and more. You know, I'm an elected precinct committee officer in the 29th LD, and a lot of the work that um, I did sort of crossed over that. And so, in that time, and and in our interests, you know, crossing crossing each other, we got to get to know each other and really build a relationship, and we got to build some shared ideas. And so, you know, I'm really um, I'm really proud of that. You know, I'm really proud that we could. It's not easy to run against someone and you know, then move on and say, like, I really want to be friends with that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, politics, uh, especially when you don't know the other person, it's easy to villainize each other. And so I'm grateful that he had an open mindset as well, and that we were able to work together on certain things that I think would benefit the district. And so, you know, when he decided that he wasn't going to run for reelection, he let me know, um, and he's actually endorsed the campaign. And what I love about that is that we can all agree on what's the next path forward? And we can all agree on, okay, here's here's the next generation. Here's the baton. Here's what we need to work on next. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to come as far as we have. Mm-hmm. So this time around, are you doing anything different? Do you have any different focus or is it just get out early and get out strong? Well, I think we're not starting from scratch this year. Like I said, we started a movement. We, you know, we had a lot of votes that year and I've been working to bring more people in. And so I think we're, we're starting from that place. You know, a lot of people already know the values of this campaign. So we're not, we're not starting from scratch. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the issues that I focused on in 2020 are still relevant today. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I've focused a lot on voting. I've focused a lot on environmental health disparities and making sure that we have clean air and water and communities. But what I continue to hear people tell me is important to them right now is basically COVID recovery, you know, the the cost of living and of course housing, which is something that we cannot ignore in this area. So those are the areas I'll be focused on and try to brainstorm solutions with folks on. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about not so much why you want to be in the legislature. So sort of I really get that, but what do you imagine that you that you will bring to this? Because I think you are the front runner, Charlotte. I mean I think this is really your race this this time. And you're young and you are um, determined, you have all kinds of ideas. What do you hope to achieve in the legislature? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's no shortage of things we need to work on here. But I'll start before you know thinking about the actual legislative issues. My biggest goal in this race is to expand the process to more people to participate in. And I don't just want to expand the voter base for the purposes of the elections. I really want to move that that movement politics into movement governing. And what that looks like to me is to have, you know, participatory budgeting. It's having people who really understand their own issues and what those solutions should be and are, you know, coming to the outside strategy part. They're coming to testify in the legislature. They're calling their neighbors and putting pressure on other legislators. They are you know, like I said, there it's not just me building policy and having town halls to tell them what I did, but it's really sharing power and doing this together. It's agenda setting 
rather than just deciding how we're going to vote on the agenda that somebody else set. Mm-hmm. So I think that's first and foremost, right? Like I want to be on the doors, not just on election season, but all the time. And I want, you know, this group of people to, to grow and to really have a say in what's going on. Um, outside of that, like I said, I mean, one of my biggest determining factors for running last year was to see leadership on the issues that are most affecting us. So it's not just about supporting the policies that are coming from another member, because if, if we don't have a member of the 29th talking about housing policy or, you know, what's happening with what the state is sending in terms of zoning, then we're just, we're just not being included when those decisions get made. So I will be focused, I think, on COVID response and recovery, which is still ongoing. Um, certainly how we can bring more good paying union jobs to the district uh, and definitely addressing the housing shortage. Mm-hmm. What are some of the um, some of the pieces of legislation this session that you're following? Well, I was following the Washington Voting Rights Act um, and seeing how we could you know establish a good baseline for folks to be able to participate. Um, but I'm following the the two bills that are in the House specifically on um, zoning and middle housing. Um, and I think that you know the housing issue is a behemoth. It's obviously got local, county, state, federal jurisdiction involvement, and it's also a spectrum. Right. So one of the things is we've got folks who are currently unhoused and they need rapid, low barrier housing. They need a roof over their head. And whatever the state can do to continue to fund those capital projects is really important. That's something I want to support as a legislator. Um, We also want to work on prevention. And the legislature has done some work on this already, but we want folks to hang on to the housing they do have. So some rental Mm -hmm. assistance came from the federal level that was handled locally. But, you know, we can continue to do tenant protections and we can continue to fund, you know, legal aid for folks that are facing evictions. And we, we don't want that pot of money to run out. So that's something the legislature can continue to support and, and really bolster tenant protections as well. And then I think mm-hmm. we have to address the supply issue. Right. And that's kind of two pronged. It's zoning and it's building. So I'm following the zoning bills. I think that's great. I think we're already seeing some progress here locally with Home and Tacoma. Um, but zoning alone does not solve the problem, right? Of course, we right. want infill, of course, we want middle housing, but we actually need to build. And I see that as a really great opportunity to bring jobs to the district as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we we need housing, we need affordable housing, and we also need to have our folks here who are in the building trades be the people to build that housing. And mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a win-win all the way around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I mean, you definitely have to have policies that support development, but then you have to have the development, you know, which yeah. usually is, you know, if, if you get some cash infusion in, um, then then that's a necessary starting point. Um, did I see that you were involved also in the um, discussions of ranked choice voting? I supported ranked choice voting uh, in 2020. I'll continue to support that as well. Um, I think I, you know, I'm not sure about um, the details of, you know, where this has happened in other places, how that has affected voters, and if it's given, you know, folks, if it's affected the outcome of elections, I'll say. Mm-hmm. But I will say that generally, you know, I can get behind a policy that gives more choice and power to the voters, where I think yeah. it, you know, really belongs. Yeah, I'm looking to find out more about that too. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. We we had an experiment with ranked choice voting in Pierce County. And I don't think we thought it went very well, but that's because it, we ended up electing a couple of, you know, frankly, bad candidates. And I don't know that that was the fault of the, of the ranked choice voting, but I think that's left everyone a little bit wary. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I yeah. see a lot of discussion of it and I'm intrigued, but I don't, I don't know enough about how it actually works. Yeah. And I, I think we have a lot that we can still do on elections. You know, there's a lot before the legislature this year, the, the prison gerrymandering bill, the changes to the automatic voter registration, you know, the pre-clearance piece uh, to restore that in Washington state, which, you know, it'd also be nice to see it restored at the federal level because they serve two different purposes in state elections and federal elections. Um, but we also really haven't had anyone step up on campaign finance reform uh, mm-hmm. in a while. And so I think that's an issue we should think about here. And much like we're talking about ranked choice voting, I have a lot of unanswered questions about some of the things I've seen uh, in Washington state and in other states, for example, democracy vouchers. Um, Mm -hmm. I think public financing of campaigns is very interesting, but I think we need accountability metrics and we need to make sure that 
you know, those are being used for the intended purpose. And I saw legislation coming out of California that would prohibit the, uh, I think, corporate PAC donations uh, to any candidate. Um, oh, and I find that I find that very interesting. Uh, and what I've heard some of the opponents say is that we'll just move all that money to independent expenditure and then we'll have less yeah. transparency. So, you know, it's none of these are the thing that's going to solve it, but I think we should really be exploring these issues and we should really be mm -hmm. thinking about how do we make elections fair and how do we open the door a little bit wider for non-traditional candidates to run for office. Yeah, I think that the, the democracy vouchers are very interesting. I haven't really followed them in Seattle for the last couple of years, but I was following it pretty closely when they started. Uh, and I, I, in Seattle, it, it's, I think the funding mechanism has worked very well. It's tied to property taxes. And I think that in Seattle, that is an excellent base of funding. I mean, it's just, it's a big pot of money. Um, over the over the entire state, I, I don't know if you could get people to um, agree to an increase in property taxes for that, but you might. I mean, it would be very interesting to see. You might see it just grow into a few more metropolitan areas too, and then see how that goes. But yeah, it's a it's it's interesting. It's very. I mean, you you know, it's very hard to raise money, and you tend to uh, default to going to the same groups that that are willing to give money. And so, you know, on the Democratic side, it tends to be um, a lot of unions and, you know, some individuals and some uh, progressive groups. And on the Republican side, it tends to be developers and some wealthy individuals and, um, you know, some sort of conservative groups. And that doesn't really, it, it sort of forces everyone to speak to those entities rather than um, trying to get, you know, the people who are going to be governed into the process. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely an uphill battle. And if you want to run a campaign that is uh, funded by small dollar donations, it is a lot more work, which I think a lot mm -hmm. of folks have taken on. That was my primary focus in 2020, but it does put you at a, um, a disadvantage, I think, an institutional disadvantage when you do something like the race that I ran in 2020, where you know folks, who are able to give max out donations are sort of mm -hmm. bought into preserving the status quo or feel mm -hmm. like they have an obligation to an incumbent. And so it's not really conducive to folks stepping up to run and represent their own communities. And I have a lot of thoughts about this, obviously I'm biased, <laughs> but I do, you know, I, I believe that people are interviewing for these jobs every two years and nobody mm -hmm. owns that seat. Um, and we should continue to interview people and we should put their ideas to the test and we should see who we want in that position. And, you know, that's not really how the system works in practice. And so it makes it very difficult for you to just get in front of people um, to send them a piece of mail or to pay campaign staff. You know, you, you want to pay campaign staff. You want to pay them well. You want to pay them a living wage. You want them to have health insurance. You want to do, you know, if you want to live your values, you have to raise money. And raising money, I think, is the biggest barrier to folks getting into into a race. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, let's take a break here. And when we come back, I wanna ask you some specific sort of Tacoma questions. That sounds great. Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Microsoft. You may know Microsoft for the software on your desktop. But did you know that Microsoft is also committed to addressing the lack of affordable housing in our region? With rapid growth in the Puget Sound, Microsoft understands that our community needs to build more housing that is affordable for people who work here, particularly low- and middle-income households. Microsoft has helped to create or preserve more than 8,000 housing units by working with community partners like the Washington State Housing Finance Commission, the Evergreen Impact Housing Fund, and the King County Housing Authority. They have awarded grants to individual housing projects and provided financing to accelerate housing development. Together, these investments will deliver more low- and middle-income housing to our region and attract affordable housing opportunities in the future. Because everyone in our community, regardless of income level, should have a place they can afford to call home. To learn more about Microsoft's work in this area, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253. 
Okay, we're back talking with Charlotte Mena. Uh, before we get back into the nitty gritty, let me just say, uh, if you are not already a member of Channel 253, now is a great time to join. Uh, it is $4 a month or $40 a year, and it helps your subscription, helps support everything we do, all of the podcasts that we produce and put out locally, which I think are a really nice adjunct to the newspapers, public radio. I think we are able to capture some really excellent local stories and your support will help us do that. Also, if you join, you'll have access to our Channel 253 member Slack channel, which is all the local scuttlebutt you could want and our uh, special member-only podcasts off the record with Doug from Nick. Please join us. All right, Charlotte. So here's sort of my big thing for this year. I want to talk with people about things that work in Tacoma and things that don't work. And so you can tell me either about the 29th district, which has sort of its own special needs. Um, I think they're still a little bit, well, not a little bit, but, you know, they're, um, on the cusp, I think, especially along South Tacoma Way, on the cusp of really becoming, I think, the next hot little uh, retail and uh, commercial area. They're not quite there yet. Or you can talk about Tacoma in general. But what is special about Tacoma, in your opinion, and what do we need to do to support that and keep that going? Yeah. Well, so the 29th is a little bit bigger than Tacoma. As you know, the new 29th will include parts of East Tacoma, but we also have um, Parkland and Spanaway. And uh, we used to have some parts of Lakewood as well. But, you know, it's a little bit, um, it's each, each city's a little bit different. And, you know, each neighborhood in Tacoma has its own personality and you can really feel it when you're in those areas, right? South Tacoma feels different than East Tacoma. And they all sort of have their own flavor. And so I think we have, you know, a mandate to grow and adapt as more people continue to move into the area and, and address, you know, the housing shortage. But I also think we really want to work to preserve, you know, the soul of each of these neighborhoods and make sure that the people who have made up that community have the opportunity to stay in those communities. So I will say the 29th um, feels a little bit different than the rest of Tacoma. And I think, you know, there, there's lots of reasons for that. We've heard talk of two Tacomas, and I think you can really feel that when you're in those areas. But I'll just say that the median average income in the 29th is over 15,000 less than wow. its neighbors in the 28th and 27th. But functionally, we're living in the same housing market, mm -hmm. right? So I would say, you know, some things that are going well is that there is agreement on the magnitude and definition of some of the biggest issues that we're dealing with, right? No one is going to argue with us that housing is a crisis and that homelessness is a crisis and that the cost of living is going up. That's great. That's not a given. On, <laughs> it's not a given in today's political climate that we all agree on the same thing. I think what we're slicing and dicing is the way that we address these things. But for me, because you know this is an area with a lot of low-wage work, and an area with a lot of gig workers. Um, it's really, how do we create more opportunities for people that live here or to have careers? And I think, you know, we can, like I said, put people to work building housing. I think mm -hmm. we have to have smart legislators in office who are vying for some of the infrastructure dollars that are coming from the federal government to make it really appealing here. Um, to say, let's build clean energy projects here. Let's put people to work here so they don't have to commute somewhere else to get a good paying job. Um, and I think we also need to think about um, just how to make those jobs sustainable here in the area, right? How to make sure that people aren't just having to travel once that construction project is over. And that's something I want to be really focused on. I, I think, you know, I toured the port of Tacoma recently, and mm -hmm. I think we have a, a pretty big untapped resource there, right? I got to go around yeah. the Longshoremen, and I got to see how much extra space we have there. And when I hear, you know, at the federal level, folks are talking about supply chain issues, and I just saw a press release come out about the way they're going to solve this is they're going to put people to work 24 hours a day at the port of Long Beach and Los Angeles. And there's people right. signing up for night shifts. And I'm thinking, right. we don't have a line in Tacoma. Like we should bring that stuff up to Tacoma. We should put our, our people to work here. And, you know, like we don't talk about the port of Tacoma enough. It's, it's really big. We've got a lot of agriculture and stuff coming from the east side. Like 
we need someone to talk about this and really elevate how significant the port is for the entire state of Washington. And that's what I want to do, right? I want people to think about this area as the economic hub that it is. And I want mm -hmm. people of the 29th to have their foot in the door for those opportunities. Yeah, I think that the port is a huge resource. I mean, there's a lot of open space there too. It could be developed um, for, for different uses, especially, you know, light industrial and, and clean industrial clean energy. Abs there's absolutely. Huge. And we've got, like I said, just a lot of money that's out there to be infused into communities. And um, in my day job, I do some federal affairs. And so I'm, you know, thinking about this money isn't really out the door yet, but mm -hmm. it is open for competition. And I think we are an area that could really put it to good use, right? Mm -hmm. We can, we can upgrade rail at the port. We can widen the road so that there isn't a line of trucks that are emitting uh, more pollution into the air so that we can do this a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the administration has also put a focus on environmental justice with their Justice 40 initiative saying 40% of the funds that we spend need to go to overburdened communities. And the 29th fits that description, frankly. So I think we have to be really strategic in how we can have state and federal partnership to bring those resources here. Mm -hmm. The housing issue is something that I think is a uh, an immediate worry. I mean, not only is there not enough and it's not, not enough is affordable, but the neighborhoods that you've discussed, I mean, I think, um, you know, Parkland in particular, I think of, I think those are areas that are going to be um, highly sought after soon. You know, they're sort of the, you know, uh, once Tacoma becomes unaffordable, you start looking at these other really uh, delightful communities I and mean, they really are with, you know, lots of individual quirky housing, little business districts. And I could see that, um, especially the area around PLU becoming a real um, growth magnet, which is great uh, yeah. for Parkland, but that means a lot of the people who've lived there for a long time are going to um, start getting squeezed in terms of their housing costs yeah. and housing availability. And I don't, I don't know what you do to prevent that. I don't know. You know, we have so many people coming in. Yeah. You know, we're not a closed ecosystem. So you've got these, you know, people coming in, uh, especially if they're people who are commuting from uh, a much higher paid job in the Seattle King County area. And I and I just don't know what you do about that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we want people to come in, but we also want to address affordability. And I think the way that we address affordability is supply because mm -hmm. we just don't have enough supply. And you know we've all heard this daunting statistic that we're about 250,000 units short statewide. And I'm confident that a lot of that is really needed in the Seattle-Tacoma area. So I will, I have a stat for you okay. Good. <laughs> that I found. Uh, it's it's uh, public information I found on the Zillow website, but Washington home values have appreciated over 72% in the past five years and 22% of that in the past year alone. That's, so yeah. if you really think about that, so I, I was previously living uh, in an apartment complex and renting. Now I'm renting in a town home and I would like to be able to buy a home at some point in my life. Mm -hmm. I know said every millennial ever, right, but right. it feels like, you know, this, this is going to be a nearly impossible task. And so yeah. when I think about that, you know, we're talking about the spectrum of housing and folks just, you know, being able to afford rent, but also being able to afford a home. I mean, we know that home buying can build stability and generational mm -hmm. wealth and give us opportunities that a lot of us didn't have and grew up with. Yeah. And when you think about the home ownership rates among um, Black people and white people and Latino people, like it is disproportionate, right? Like I think the home ownership rates are around 40% for uh, Black Washingtonians and it's about 70%. For white Washingtonians and you know for Latinos that fall somewhere in there. And because our district is majority minority and we mm -hmm. have more black and brown folks in this district, we know that that's affecting us disproportionately. And mm -hmm. I think that there's no other way to address this than to increase supply, which of course doesn't happen overnight, but we really have to make good decisions now if we're gonna address this long term. Yeah. It's supply and I would say <clears throat> it's also um working with groups to come up with, um, you know, financing options. I, I went to a training uh, more than 10 years ago now on, um, you know, racial disparity, sort of the, 
I would say the tragedy of redlining and the, Mm -hmm. and it struck me, it was such a powerful story. They, they sort of took, you know, two families, two houses, not far away from each other, one owned by a black family and in a redlined area, one owned by a white family, not in a redlined area, the white family, the house, you know, so grandfathers both serve in world war two, they come out, they get GI funding, white grandfather, buys a modest house in a white neighborhood. It increases in value. He can borrow against it to send his kids to college. Kids then have better jobs. They're able to afford houses. You know, it just just builds and builds and builds. Black grandfather in a redlined area, house does not increase in value. It's very stagnant. He's discriminated against in terms of borrowing. He can't borrow against it. There's no borrowing to send the kids to college. You know, it's just, the family suffers. So the white family, boom, boom, boom. Three generations, enormous increases in wealth and opportunity. Black family, stuck, stuck. All of the resources of the community, the parks, the schools go to the white community, not to the, not to the black community. I mean, it's just, it is, it is devastating. It is devastating when you look at the generational impacts of these policies and you just, um, it's it's staggeringly bad. And this was another one of those, you know, perhaps the system was intended to be this way. And how do you, you know, yeah. correcting that is no. hard work, hard work, but at least you first have to see it. So yeah, I mean, one of the things is like, you have to be able to buy a house, Charlotte. I mean, it's just in, in our world, in our you know, society, that is the way you develop your nest egg. That is the way you prepare for the future. And, and there are some lending opportunities out there that people aren't really super aware of. You know, they can help with the down payment. They can help with different things. So I will say, just as a side, get a good real estate agent long before you <laughs> want to buy. You, know, so you, have, so you have someone to talk to who knows about these resources. But honestly, I mean, it's it's a huge societal issue. It's a huge issue in terms of, health, you know, well-being, long-term success, your grandchildren. I mean, it's just everything the way we're set up. And so for it not to be available to entire groups of people is wrong on the most basic level, wrong. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And we will connect offline about a good real estate agent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, We've talked about what's working and what we need to preserve. What's not working that we need to address? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're hitting the nail on the head here, right? We still have racial inequity and disparities, and it's not just affecting the housing market and who has the opportunity to buy a house, but really aspect every aspect of, of public policy and, and the way that we live our lives. And so I think we have taken some steps as a state government to start to address those disparities Um, I mentioned there's a new environmental justice bill that passed last year that we're working to implement, but we really need to have this lens on everything we do. So Mm -hmm. I know that the legislature has taken some initial steps in doing um, like a racial equity analysis on some of the bills that come through, but I think we really have to start thinking about these things as separate things and saying like, first we do the policy and then Mm -hmm. we sort of review it for this and really just have it integrated in everything that we do. Because you, you started to harp on this too, but you know, redlining, you know, continues and perpetuates inequities today. And when you think about why the air quality or water quality might be bad in a certain area, like the 29th, as opposed to on the North side, it's because we continue to put, you know, facilities that emit a lot of pollution in these areas, or we build housing around there that people that have the means don't want to buy and live in. And so it's just these perpetual compounding on compounding on compounding. And some of it is, I don't think intentional, but it's, you know, it's like that systemic racism that's baked into how we've made decisions for such a long time. And so we, we really need to think about that in everything that we're doing. And we need to think about how we're setting people up for success. And we especially need to think about this as we continue on with COVID recovery, which I didn't think we would still be doing at this time. I'm sure a lot of people didn't think we would still be doing at this time. Um, I was, I was appointed by the governor to the uh, governor's pandemic action 
after action review or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's a little bit of a mis- misnomer because we're not after the pandemic action. Right. But when you look at the statistics of who was affected and hospitalized and lost their lives, it is disproportionately people of color. You know, for Latinos, it was 2.5 times higher uh, than our counterparts of folks who who lost their lives to this disease, um, to this illness. And so why is that, right? We look at those factors. We look at what kind of jobs people have. Were they frontline workers? You know, did they have the, the proper PPE that they needed to go back to work? Did they have the opportunity to take time off? Did, you know, what were they doing with their kids? And so we're not done and we're not on the other side. And I think the state still has a big role to play here. You know, we can extend hazard pay. We can make the unemployment benefit for undocumented workers permanent. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, be more proactive about making sure that folks have access to tests and masks. And you know, we just really need to stay on top of this because we're not out of the woods yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I used to represent uh, and work very closely with um, labor and industries. I was the division chief in the attorney general's office for that division. And I was always very proud of the fact that workers' compensation is available regardless of immigration status. Basically, if you work, you know, if you have an employer who hired you and you get injured on the job, you will be compensated. You know, and if there's an issue with your um, immigration status and whether you should have been hired, that's a different issue. The fact is you were hired and you did work and you have been injured. And I really think the same should be true for unemployment. Now, I know that's harder because that's really controlled by the federal's, um, federal law. But honestly, if you've been hired and you then are unemployed, you should have that same equal rights because otherwise we create a bizarre backwards incentive to hire people who are undocumented because you know that if you lay them off, you won't have any repercussions. You won't have to um, experience an increase in your taxes for having more people on unemployment. And that's not an incentive you want to create, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. And it goes back to what I said earlier too. It's how can we have folks that are paying payroll taxes and paying into a system that they don't get to benefit from on the other end. I mean, it it feels incredibly wrong for someone to be working and paying into these systems and be a part of a union and, and pay their union dues and, mm-hmm. and not get the same benefits as everyone else because of documentation. I yeah. mean, it's not right. And I don't think that we as a state that prides itself on being inclusive and progressive can continue to stand for that. So I, you know, I'm, I'm very supportive of the legislation I saw this year to make that unemployment benefit permanent. I think right. we should be thinking about this in terms of healthcare. We should be thinking yes. about this in terms of every aspect of society. I mean, Washington's one of the the few states I think that still has uh, driver's licenses for folks that are undocumented. And when you really think about it, I mean, this, this benefits everyone. We want people yeah. to be able to go to work. We want them to have insurance should something right. terrible happen. Right. Um, it, it's common sense to do these things. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if someone has a driver's license and they're required to get insurance now, not everyone who's required gets insurance, but your chances are much better that you have better trained drivers, better insured drivers, and a safer, a safer system entirely. Everyone benefits from that. Everyone, everyone benefits. And honestly, everyone benefits from people having insurance coverage. I mean, yes. if there's nothing else that we learned from this pandemic, it's that one person's health affects everyone's health, right? And, yeah. and I think we often get really short-sighted and, and don't think about how we pay those costs tenfold down the line when people have to go get emergency room care and it right. becomes uncompensated care. Like we have to get out of this mindset that there is a, a limited pie, the zero sum mentality uh, that right. I think is actually hurting everybody writ large. Well, I mean, the, the reality is, is that, so I have, I, you know, I'm a state employee, you're a state employee, we have good insurance coverage. But it hurts us when people are uninsured. And, you know, if you go to the emergency, first, you know, they have to go to the emergency room instead of regular, usually, you know, preventive health care. But secondly, those costs don't evaporate. They get spread to those, you know, we pay them. We pay them. We pay them in our insurance rates and in our taxes. So if everyone was insured, everyone would pay less. It's just, it's math. It's just, I mean, it's, it's just math. Yeah. 
It's not even possible. It's not it's my math. strongest subject, and I get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, tell me uh, in your campaign and what's going on, tell me how people can help you. I would love for people to help me. We are at the very beginning stages of the campaign, uh, but people can get involved in any way they'd like to, right? They can make a contribution. They can sign up to volunteer. They can sign up to have a yard sign in their yard, and they can do that on my website at charlottemena.org, which is spelled S-H-A-R-L-E-T-T-M-E-N-A.org. So folks can reach out there. They can also send me a message. I check those messages myself. I respond to people. I got one last night that made me laugh. Thank you for reaching out, Stephen. <laughs> uh, but folks should just uh, just reach out. You can follow me on all the social medias at Charlotte Mena. And I check the DMs and everything as well. Great. Okay. Well, before we close out, anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet today, Charlotte? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. You're an incredible interviewer. I feel like I told you my life story. <laughs> Good. And we'll get you a real estate agent too. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll have to chat about that after this. And by the way, I will say I uh, I became uh, a 253 uh, member uh, not too long ago. And I've, I've been lurking in the chats, but I haven't participated <laughs> yet. But, you know, folks should sign up because I might be dropping cheese in there uh, somewhere sometime soon. Excellent. Well, we have uh, not a regularly scheduled, but we have a party line Twitter spaces every now and again. And that's always a good place to, you know, listen in and find out what's up too. I love it. Right. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you so much. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.